does it mean for people? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for the world? In one sense, Jesus' disciples had been working to unpack the answer to that question since Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, what does his death mean? And that unpacking sometimes has taken place even at church councils where people have gotten together to say, okay, we serve a Savior who's the Son of God and the Son of Man who died, who was raised again. So how does that work out for us today? Uh, one of the places where people tried to do that was at the Council of Trent. This is a council that took multiple years. And in 1547, they were working on session six on what was called justification. How is a person made right with God? <clears throat> there was a man who came to the Council of Trent to speak on this issue of justification. His name was Tommaso Sanfelice. And he believed, he was convinced from the Bible that a person was made right with God by trusting in Jesus alone. And there were many other people at the council who said, not exactly, maybe to begin with, but then in order to make it all the way, uh, you have to be good enough. And San Felice showed up and he spoke in defense of the principle that we are made right with God by faith in Jesus alone. There was another man at the council named Dionysius de Zanatini. He had a nickname, Grecetto. I'm just going to stick with that one. It means little Greek. San Felice overheard Grecetto saying, calling San Felice an ignoramus or a scoundrel. Uh, he's, he's either stupid or evil. So Grecetto uh, was on the other side of the argument and he saw San Felice as either stupid or evil, an ignoramus or a scoundrel. Well, San Felice heard this, and so he comes to Grecetto and he says, Hey, what did you say? And Grecetto says, I said you were an ignoramus or a scoundrel. So San Felice took him by his beard and shook it, and the report was that he shook it so hard that part of Grecetto's beard came out in his hands, and San Felice was promptly removed from the Council of Trent, as you can understand. What did he want? What did San Felice want? Well, he wanted people to believe in justification by faith, but he wanted something else too, maybe something you can relate to. He wanted justification. He wanted to be right and be found to be right. He, even as he argued that sinners, including himself, are made right with God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus, he couldn't stand the fact that Grecetto said he was stupid or evil. He believed he had spiritual justification, but there was something else he felt like he couldn't live without. We could call it social justification. On paper, at least... He knew that he was right with God through faith in Jesus alone. But he couldn't stand it that he wasn't right with people. And so he became a social justification warrior for himself. Every one of us looks for 
justification looks to be right somewhere. And we're unsatisfied until we've found it, or at least until we think that we found it. And so we make up ways of getting it, of getting justification, of, of standing in a place where we are confident that we are right with the people who really matter. And on our own, we always try to get that justification, that sense of being right, that sense of being accepted through some kind of law. It's always some kind of law. We don't even recognize it as a law, but it, it happens. It happens in the communities where we want to feel safest. It happens among our friends. And the law often among our friends is be normal. Be like us. Be like us. And we call it peer pressure. And that's not something we grow out of. I remember a pastor once saying that peer pressure uh, doesn't end. It just gets more expensive as you get older. It, we have this law among friends. We want to be justified among them. And the law is be normal. Maybe in your nuclear fam family, the law is or has been be good. Don't embarrass us and don't inconvenience us. Be good. Sometimes it happens in subgroups as well. Uh, some of us have either have been or are in a seminary community. And there can be a law in a seminary community that says to be justified, to be accepted, be smart. Be really good at talking about ideas that the Bible talks about. Maybe it's a different Christian subgroup. Be similar. Be like us. Use this particular system of training your kids that we use. Be a fan of these authors and speakers like we are. Be able to name the same names that we name. And if you do, then you're justified among us. Sometimes it's, it's in totally mundane kinds of groups like sports fans. Just like the same teams as we do, and we will like you. Sometimes it's a very small group. Sometimes it's two people who say the rule is we accept each other. You say I'm okay, and I'll say you are. And we find justification. Social justification. Now, many of those laws within those communities have a lot of true things about them. And communities are good. Being accepted in communities is good. But there's a danger for us to watch for as we long for what we could call social justification, acceptance with people, especially through obedience to a law. Our desire to be right with people can change what we say about how to be right with God. It happens. It can change what we say with our words. It can change the actual message that we send, or it can just change what we say with our actions. We can say with our actions that what it takes to be right with God is something more than trusting in Jesus. It can change the way we answer the question, verbally or practically, why did Jesus die? In fact, what's at stake here is a statement that's made at the end of this morning's passage. A statement that my guess is all of us would deny if the statement were put in front of us. But this statement 
really is on the line for us as we seek to be justified before God and before people. And the statement is this at the end of Galatians 2, Christ died for no purpose. I don't believe that. I hope you don't. I bet you don't. If Christ died for no purpose, then we're here for no purpose. There's no resurrection. There's no celebration. It's the end. Paul, as he writes to his friends in Galatia, is deeply concerned for them. Since they first trusted Jesus, they have received a message from someone other than Paul that says they need something in addition to Jesus to be justified, to be right. Paul knows that's really, really dangerous, so he writes to them, and, and he tells them a story. It's a story about someone who wanted justification. Someone who wanted social justification. Justification, he wanted to be right with people. And as a result, this someone, we'll hear his name in just a minute, this someone compromised the truth about how people are justified before God. He compromised the gospel. This was someone who knew better, way better. And this was someone who had to be brought face to face with the question, why did Jesus die? And to be brought back to the truth about it. Before we go any further, I want to read the text. You'll hear the story uh, when, I, when I mention the name Cephas, you may recognize that as the name Peter. That's who we're talking about. The text this morning is Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. If you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, uh, this is on page 973. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. 
the names and places in that story that Paul tells uh, may be familiar to you. They may not be so familiar to you. So let's just walk through the story, and I'm going to fill in uh, some of the details about uh, who these names were and where these places were and how it fit in the overall story of the disciples asking the question, what just happened and what does it mean? So Cephas came to Antioch. Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's outside of the land of Israel. It's outside the the nation of God's chosen people, the Jews. Some Jews had settled there over time as they'd sort of spread out over the centuries, but it was mainly Gentile territory. During this time, during the time after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christians in Jerusalem were increasingly persecuted. It got unsafe for them to live in Jerusalem, so they began to spread out, and some of them spread to Antioch. And a thriving Christian community arose there. And that Christian community in Antioch was different from the Christian community in Jerusalem in one really important way. In Antioch, the Christian community was made up of a mix of Jews and Gentiles. That mix was a major adjustment for anybody who grew up in a Jewish background. The Jewish people they had grown up knowing were God's special people. And they lived as God's special people by obeying God's arrangement for them, by obeying the law that he had given them. That's how they stayed clean. The Gentiles did not stay clean. The Gentiles did not obey God's law. The Gentiles were not like them. The Gentiles were dirty. By Gentiles, I just mean somebody who's not ethnically a Jew. So it's everybody else in the world. And they were unclean. And so, in order to stay clean, the Jews were careful to keep themselves separate from the Gentiles. Perhaps you have a feeling of this this sense, this fear of uncleanness. If you had any concern about germs at this time last year, I can pretty well guess that that concern is not less at this time this year after going through this past year. We know something of, of the fear of uncleanness in its variety of different forms. And so even if we don't have the same fear as somebody who grew up in a Jewish home, we can sympathize with the feeling and with the desire to stay away. Then Jesus came and he told his followers that he was bringing a new arrangement between God and people. A new covenant. The old one was given through the law. The, the new one is given in his blood. And so his followers had to learn just what that new arrangement meant. It was going to take them some time. Peter was among the followers who had to learn what it meant. And so, <clears throat> around this same time that people were spreading out from Jerusalem, God sent Peter to the home of a Gentile. The home. He had to go into his house. There's a Gentile named Cornelius in Caesarea. That's about 60 or so miles north of Jerusalem. This is in Acts 10. And so Peter had to be convinced first, but God made very clear, yes, I want you to go. I want you to go. And Peter goes 
And he, he speaks to Cornelius and to his household, and he tells them about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he tells them about the promise that, this is Acts 10.43, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone receives forgiveness, cleansing. And as he spoke, Cornelius and his household believed. And God showed that they believed by giving them the Holy Spirit in a way that could not be denied. <clears throat> he did that without their becoming Jews or adopting the law that had been given to Jews. Showing that this forgiveness was for everyone. Everyone, Jew or Gentile, who would trust in Jesus. That's Peter's recent background. And now, sometime later, Peter has come to Antioch, where there's this thriving Christian community made up of a mix of Jews and Gentiles together. And as he's there, he lives out the lesson, this brand new, rather foreign lesson that he's learned, that Jesus makes Gentiles completely clean by faith in him. So Peter does something that would have been totally unthinkable to him in the past. He eats with them. Before, this is verse 12 of Galatians 2, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Then some other people showed up in Antioch. Another group. Uh, this is a group that hadn't yet learned what Peter had learned about what the death of Jesus does for those who trust him. They were still convinced that acceptance with God required being acceptably Jewish. They would say, yes, Jesus was the Messiah, and you did need to trust him, and you also needed to become like we are. You've got to obey the law. You need to obey our law, and anybody who didn't remained unclean. They show up in Antioch with the attitude that faith in Jesus does not make Gentiles clean enough. That's their basic attitude. And when they show up, Peter acts like they're right. Verse 12, when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Now, if we want to give Peter the benefit of the doubt here, uh, we can imagine an argument in Peter's mind. Uh, he, he's not saying, I hate Gentiles now. But he could be saying, okay, I don't agree with these guys. I don't agree that the Gentiles are not clean enough, but I also don't want to offend them. This is new. This is new for us, us who grew up in a Jewish household. It's an adjustment for them. They haven't gotten used to this new way of doing things, and I don't want to drive them away. So how can I wisely love these people? Now that's, that's a good question to ask, uh, to not unnecessarily drive people away. But Paul knows, and, and we can see, if we're watching closely, that that's not really the question that Peter's asking. In this case, Peter is driven not by wise love, but by, verse 12, fearing the circumcision party. When Peter draws back and he separates himself, what's he doing? He's trying to be justified. He's looking for social justification. He fears them, and he wants to be accepted by them, and he needs to watch it. So do we. 
the way that we try to be justified with people spills over. It spills over to other people, and it spills over to the message that we send about how to be justified with God. The, the impulse to not offend was not the only impulse in Peter, and his decision did not only impact him. It spread like cancer. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews, that is the rest of the Jewish Christians, those who were also in Antioch, who were also eating with Gentiles, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This man who was known for bringing unaccepted Christians together follows Peter in backing off from the Gentiles. And the impact is not limited to these Jewish believers. The impact spreads to the Gentile believers as well. It sends a message about how to be justified with God. As far as we know, Peter didn't say anything to contradict the truth of the gospel. He didn't say, you know what? I think these guys have a point. Christians really do need to obey the law as well as trusting Jesus in order to be right. He didn't say that at all. We have no indication that he did. He probably never even thought it, but his fear compromised the message about how people are made right with God. His conduct and others with him, Paul says, their conduct, verse 14, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. There's a compromise of the message. And so Paul gets in Peter's face. He says, I opposed him to his face. And here's what he says. This starts in verse 14. Peter, the people that you don't want to drive away are driving people away. They're saying that Jesus doesn't make people clean enough, that his death isn't enough. And your choices are confirming that message. Your choices are forcing the Gentiles to make a choice. Because if, if they, your Gentile brothers in Antioch, if they're now going to be accepted in your Christian circle, what do they have to do? The only choice then is for the Gentiles to live like Jews. That's verse 14. So Paul says, Peter, you're being inconsistent here. You're living like Gentiles by eating with Gentiles. And now you've flip-flopped and your choice is telling the Gentiles the only way for you to be in the circle I'm in now is to live like the Jews. Something else is needed for you. Peter, you and I know better, Paul would say. We know better. We know that this insider club that we were born into and its rules, we know they're not enough. We found that out. They can't justify. We know that because we were born into this insider club. This is where we were from the beginning. We ourselves, verse 15, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And I think by what Paul means, you could put scare quotes around sinners. We're not Gentile sinners. We grew up accepted. We grew up knowing how to be accepted. We grew up knowing they were dirty outsiders and not good enough. And now we know better. 
what do we know better? It's not that the Gentiles are good enough. It's Peter, you and I, we're not good enough. That's what we found out. We found out we're not ultimately true insiders. We're not clean. And we've given up on the rules that our insider club has used to be clean. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Whoever it is among the insiders that does the best job of obeying the law, this law, this good law, this law given by God, this law that has no errors in it, whoever does the best job of obeying that is still an outsider, still unclean, still not justified. What's true of the Gentiles, Peter, is true of us. So what are we left with? Where do we go from here? We know where. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So now, Peter, if I'm justified in Jesus, if I'm right, I'm clean in him, and my Gentile brother is clean in Jesus, then I'm going to eat with him. If I won't, I'm not only saying something about my brother. I'm answering the question about whether Jesus' death meant anything. Now, Paul recognizes that this can lead to a question. If we're saying that Jesus only justifies sinners, and he justifies them completely, without the help of rules that tell us not to sin. If Jesus does it completely by his death, then does that mean that Jesus justifies sin? Paul asks that question. He, he foresees it, and so he asks it. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, sinners that then are accepted in Jesus, is Christ then a servant of sin? Of course not. Paul knows that, Peter knows that, but Paul makes that clear, verse 17, certainly not. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus, by his death, does for us what no law could ever <clears throat> manage to do. Because of Jesus, I don't have to sin, I don't have to live in sin, I don't have to live my way out of sin by a law. Now, because of his death, and because of his death alone, I can live to God. I can live in a reconciled relationship with God, an open relationship, an accepted relationship. That's verse 19. Because of what Jesus did, the arrangement has changed for me in such a way that now, in a way that could never be true before, I live to God. That's where Jesus and Jesus alone gets us. Life in God. Open, accepted, free, welcoming. When I trust him, and I trust him alone, I tear down any other attempt to be justified by anything else. By any set of rules, by any law, including the good law that God gave. 
And if I rebuild what I tore down, Paul says, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Verse 18. That's the real transgression. That's the real problem is setting back up a law, setting back up a set of rules, rebuilding the wall between sinners and salvation. Because what does that do? When I do that, when I build that law back up and say, you still got to get over this thing to get accepted by God. I'm living against the ultimate purpose of God's law itself. See, God's law is different from any law we come up with. First of all, it's different because it doesn't have any errors in it. Second of all, it's different in one very important way. God's law, the law that he gave to the Jewish people through Moses, was meant, was built, was designed to expire. Ours don't do that, do they? Our laws that say, here's how you can be good enough among us, they're self-perpetuating. They never end. We, we might have our moments of acceptance and glory and affirmation, and people say, ah, we want you to be part of us. And then it fades, and we find ourselves having to climb that hill again. And it never ends. They weren't built to be self-expiring. We're never done. God's law was designed to bring us to a place where our relationship with the law would be dissolved. And that's what Paul says. He says, verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Peter, you and I have something that no law could ever give us. Through the death of Jesus, led there even by the law, we have life. We live to God. And so do our Gentile brothers. Paul says, I've given up on living up. I'm not justified by living up to something. I'm justified by being joined to someone. This is no longer about a law. This is about a person. This is about a person who has done enough, a person that I've found to be trustworthy and who is trustworthy, and my hope is in being joined to him. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. How how does he live in me? By my obeying a law that he's told me to, to obey? No. In a totally different way, verse 20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in him because I believe that what he did was enough. What he did was personal And what he did is finished, enough for him to say as he died, it is finished. It's personal and it's finished. Verse 20, he loved me and he gave himself for me. No law ever did that. Peter knew there was something important at stake in this situation. And he needed to be reminded what it really was, what was really at stake It wasn't, in this case, just a judgment call about how to walk a line between two different groups with different preferences. What was at stake was the question of Jesus himself, the person, and whether he had died for nothing. So Paul says, verse 21, I, 
I refuse. I do not nullify the grace of God. The grace of God has been extended in Jesus, and I refuse to live in such a way as to communicate, even without words, that that grace also needs to be purchased. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ's death is all or nothing. Either it's everything needed to make us clean before God, whoever we are, whatever our background is, or Paul says in verse 21, or it's totally pointless. Righteousness, rightness before God through anything but the death of Christ would mean that Christ died for no purpose. We're here today to celebrate the opposite that Christ's death was for a purpose, that it was for the purpose, that it accomplished its purpose completely, that that purpose fully answers our deepest longings to be justified, to be found right, to be received. And we have that confidence, not in a law, therefore not in ourselves, but in a person outside of ourselves, a truly good person who died and who is alive. This is not dead letters that we have to use to somehow make ourselves good enough. It's represented in another, in a person, in a person who loved us and gave himself for us in a way that was enough. And if that's enough, to be right with God, then it governs our desire to be right with people. Remember, we've seen it in Peter, that our desire to be right with people can compromise the message that we send about how to be right with God. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be compromised in our own hearts. We don't want to compromise it for others. I want us to think just for a minute about where this happens today. It happens all over the place. It happens in our little moments in life. One of the places where I see this happening is with people who grew up in a Christian community, like ours, like our church, like our homes, and who, maybe even without recognizing it, tried to find their justification, tried to find their acceptance, tried to be good enough in their community by obeying the rules of their Christian community. Tried to be a good enough Christian according to the rules of their particular group. And I see that leading to one of three conclusions. Now, there are others as well, but here are three particularly dangerous conclusions that people get to after a life of trying to live up to the laws of their Christian community and to find justification there. Here's one of them. I can't be a good enough Christian. I can't do it. I've tried. I've tried obeying the rules. Maybe even some of the rules they've tried to obey are exactly rules that they, that they should obey. They're rules that God has given us in his word. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's just a matter of trying to be a particular shape of Christian that the Bible hasn't even required of us. One way or another, people grow up and they're trying to get it by the rules and they say, I, I can't. I can't do the rules. I can't be a good enough Christian. So I'm not going to be a Christian. We've seen it happen. Sometimes it's, I can't be good enough as a Christian. 
Here I am, I'm in this Christian community, and I see people looking in from the outside saying, we see all kinds of trouble with you guys. You guys are dead wrong about some things. You Christians, you're, you're not acceptable. And, and sometimes they're partly true, right? Sometimes they're looking at us and, and saying, you, you guys have some things really, really wrong. And so some people say, I can't be good enough for them as a Christian, so I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm going to be good enough somewhere else. And that's really the third way of responding. And that is, I can be just as good without being a Christian. I can find justification somewhere else. Here I am within this Christian community, and I'm not good enough inside or outside, but over here, there's another set of rules. There's, a rule, there's rules about being nice enough or being kind enough or not judging or you name it. Right, liking the right sports team if you want. And I'm going to find justification over there because I can be accepted there. And so I'm not going to be a Christian. It's impossible or it's unsafe or it's irrelevant and always because of some kind of law. Some law I can't live up to or the promise of another law I can live up to, and in every case, what that ends up concluding with is the conclusion in verse 21, Christ died for no purpose. So what I would, what, what I would love to ask a person in that situation, maybe you're finding yourself there. Maybe you're on the verge of coming to one of those three conclusions. My, my big question for you is not so much, no, you, you really can obey the law or their law is wrong. It's not about law. My question for you is, what about Jesus? Because my guess is you haven't stopped admiring him. He's a real person. And I want to know how you respond to him. What about his death? Is his death alone, aside from all these ignoramuses and scoundrels that you see around you, what about him? Is he good enough? And if he's good enough, then is his death good enough? Is his death good enough to make all the unclean people you see around you, including yourself, clean? Because you're never going to find it in any law. Before people, and certainly before God. <clears throat> now, what if you're on the inside group? Uh, I suspect that's where most of us find ourselves right now. And what if you're there and you find yourself called an ignoramus or a scoundrel? Can you find a better option than beard pulling to respond to that? Let's uh, choose your own adventure for San Felice. Consider the opportunity set before him. Grichetto says, yeah, I called you an ignoramus and a scoundrel. What opportunity did San Felice have? He had the opportunity to make the gospel plain and beautiful. To say to Grichetto, you know, an ignoramus or a scoundrel, that might be. That might be. And that's exactly why I'm here. I'm here to tell people that Jesus died to make acceptable ignoramuses and scoundrels like me and like you. To tell the ignoramus and the scoundrel the good news of the Son of God and forgiveness in his death the one who loved me and gave himself for me, and it's enough. Father, may we live that way. Guard our confidence before you 
in the sufficiency of the death of Jesus, demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus, and let us live that out in our relationships with others, where we long for acceptance, but may that acceptance never compromise the truth that what Jesus did was enough. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.